the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 41 of Magic Markets. We are fresh off a double header on the topic of ETFs. Uh, the first show, Mo and I entertained you on that topic, and then Narina Fisser joined us for a bit of a masterclass on, on how to use them in a portfolio. So we've decided to do something different this week because that's enough of, uh, of ETFs for a couple of weeks. And Mo, we're going to talk about another topic that is really on the tip of every ton that is involved in the world of investments, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely, Ghost. Uh, thanks again uh, to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Magic Markets. The, the topic, which has really been, I guess, one of the most pressing issues over the course of the last several weeks, maybe even several months, has been inflation. You know, And we've spoken and we've touched on it in terms of some of the previous shows. But the intent of this week's exercise is really to look at not whether we're going to get inflation globally or not get inflation. Does it run away? Does not run away? It's really to look at how do you invest in periods of inflation? What kind of investments do well uh, in periods of inflation or in periods of deflation? Uh, and so it seeks to really make what is essentially a macro discussion a lot more accessible to every single investor that's out there in terms of how do I practically contextualize this in my portfolio in how I manage my own money? And something I often write about is there's that old adage of, you know, it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. And if you're just putting a fixed amount every month into a broad ETF over 50 years, then that's largely true. You know, then I would say you're you're a typical passive investor and you're looking to just build wealth. You've recognized that equities will pay you much more than money market returns over the next 50 years. And you're doing all the right stuff as you work towards retirement. But I think for listeners of Magic Markets, they certainly want to be a bit more active in their decision making and learn more about the markets. And in those situations, inflation is one of the drivers. And it's certainly one of the drivers of specific asset classes and it hurts others and if you learn you know what does well in periods of inflation in theory and what potentially doesn't do well in in periods of inflation then you can position your portfolio accordingly to take a view on this stuff and hopefully get it right and and enjoy some some cyclical profits along the way it's quite different to the sort of long-term market strategy isn't it yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, everything in markets requires you to take a view. Uh, no one really makes money by sitting on the sidelines. So you've got to take a view. Uh, and inflation is a very important view. Uh, at the end of the day, it will result in very divergent performance based on what your asset allocation mix looks like. Uh, you indicated, for example, that if you're the investor who puts away some money every month into a passive allocation that, you know, they, they kind of just leave it as it is. But as Narina said on the show last week, every investment decision is an active one. Uh, if we let, let, let's dial it all the way back and let's go and just look at inflation and why it's so important, Ghost, is that when you say inflation and then you throw on top of that runaway inflation, which turns into hyperinflation, 
everyone out there will go and picture these catastrophic examples from the past. And that would be the likes of Weimar Republic Germany, you know, around World War II. It would be the likes of Zimbabwe. It would be the likes of Venezuela. And given the massive amount of stimulus that your major world central banks, uh, you know, that being the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, China, have all pumped into the system, there's a concern that inflation becomes unhinged or de-anchored globally, and that we end up with a period of runaway inflation in a global context. Now, the other important thing to note from an inflation perspective is that there is also a country in the world that, despite massive run-ups in debt and massive stimulus over the years, has not had runaway inflation, and that is Japan. So there are two schools of thought. One is we go into a hyper, a high inflation era, uh, you know, think of all of those bad examples I gave you. The other is that structurally the world is orientated towards disinflation and deflation. And maybe we're all going into a Japanification of markets. Uh, And they are both two very different schools of thought. But one last point I want to just bring in to set the foundation here is the overwhelming majority of global central banks have in their mandates, an inflation, uh, it's an inflation targeting mandate. And the reason for this is that the world's kind of come out of an era where high inflation was bad. It tended to actually hurt the poorest of the poor the most. And so over the course of those years, inflation targeting became central to how policy was 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 orientated across most major global central banks. And so the natural relationship that underpins that is as inflation runs away and gets above targeted levels, and if it is seen to be persisting there and actually accelerating, getting much worse, the policy response would be less stimulus and higher interest rates. And why I want to put that out there is that for the listener that's not yet familiar with some of these concepts, that is actually going to be fundamental to the discussion we're just going to have right now in terms of how different asset classes and different investments behave uh, under a rising interest rate environment. I think Japanification, definitely the word of the week here on Magic Markets. Thank you, Mo. And uh, I listened to uh, Jerome Powell. Jackson Hole speech last week and I read it which was a little bit easier than listening to it to be honest and the one thing he talked about was as you've said you know we've come out of a period of almost deflation or deflationary pressures part of which is people's spending moving into the services economy and technology then making those services cheaper generally over time as I as I understood it so the Fed aims for two percent average inflation but as I understand it that's actually their secondary target because their first target is the concept of maximum employment which, if I'm right, means that they're quite happy to actually let inflation run in some of these durables if it means that it's getting more Americans back into the job market. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, th- I think you've touched on an important point in that the Fed's mandate is is this double-edged sword. It's, it's full employment and an inflation target. I think central to the Fed's narrative over the course of this entire year has been the fact that they would tolerate some asymmetry in terms of inflation. So what does that mean? It means that they would tolerate inflation persisting above their 2% target for a period of time if it meant that that was building towards an economic recovery. Now, what's changed and why Jackson Hole was was such a big focal point, but actually ended up being a bit of a non-event, is that The economy in the U.S. is running pretty hot. The jobs market has recovered. We don't know what the Delta variant is going to do, so I think there's some uncertainty around that. It's why you've seen the U.S. 10-year yield remaining very contained. We've spoken about that on the show previously, so I'm not going to go into that detail. But all in all, 
The takeaway from Jackson Hole was that the Fed is likely going to consider pulling back some of the stimulus in terms of tapering its asset purchases, but that the period between then and eventual liftoff of interest rates is still currently undefined and probably pushed well out into the future. And that's very similar and aligned to some of the thinking that I had written about on my blog, monos.com where I said, you know, don't dread the Fed. That was the the article that I had written. I wrote about what I was expecting coming out of Jackson Hole. So very much aligned in terms of what I had thought the outcome would be thus far. But I do think there's an important distinction that needs to be made, and that inflation, or CPI as the Fed targets it, is a rate of change, and prices may increase. But if it's a one-off increase, if it rises and then plateaus, it doesn't mean the price comes down. But the inflation rate will go back down to zero. So if you think of a one-off increase from, let's say, you're paying 100 bucks for something right now, it moves to 110, your inflation rate when it moves to 110 initially would be 10%. But thereafter, if it stays at 110 for the next year, you're still paying more for that particular widget, but the inflation rate would go from 10% back down to zero. And that's an important nuance that people miss, is that the rate of change of inflation may ease back but there will be some sort of built-in systemic higher prices that come through. And that's going to result inevitably in winners and losers, not just in the U.S. economy, but in the global economy as well. Maybe let's start getting into what some of those winners and losers are. Well, I think the point around inflation at the moment is that some things are rising relatively quickly and others are flat or, or, or not doing much at all. Now, part of why it's important to invest in companies where the thing they sell is is rising beautifully is because the effect of leverage typically then comes into those groups. So any company will have an income statement where there are fixed costs and variable costs, and those fixed costs by nature do not go up just because revenue goes up. You know, if you've got a mine and you are mining gold, I'm going to use that as an example in the hope it pushes the gold price just ever so slightly. You know, if the gold price is higher, the costs of that mine are not necessarily higher. But if the gold price drops, unfortunately, the costs don't go down either. So that's called operating leverage, which means your revenue moves by a certain percentage and the impact on your operating profit is a much higher percentage, which is something that we are seeing playing out in mining businesses and manufacturing companies and shipping for that matter all over the place at the moment. And then what happens below that is financial leverage, which is just how much debt you have on the balance sheet. And that, that isn't really impacted by inflation. That's a that's a capital structure decision. So the companies that are winning during inflation within the equities world are the companies where their specific product is on the right side of inflation at the moment. So Grindrod shipping is an incredible example. I mean, that share price locally has gone nuts because of the Baltic dry index and the general shortage of of containers in the world at the moment, which is really interesting. I mean, Sassol's been another winner. I mean, Mo, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, Canada's quite a resource-rich market, isn't it? And I, I would think that the local indices have then been benefiting from this quite a lot. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of congruency between the Canadian market and the South African market in that there's a very large mining emphasis. There's a there's an even larger oil emphasis. I mean, obviously, as, as oil prices go up, Canada tends to do well there as well. So in Canada, it's maybe a slightly more diversified basket than what you've kind of got down in, in South Africa. But the other nuance as well is that countries like South Africa or commodity plays, if you want to call it that, within the, the broader emerging markets universe would tend to have their currencies perform better simply because the commodities that they're generally exporting to the world are now rising in price. So it would traditionally mean a narrow current account deficit or maybe a current account surplus 
That in aggregate translates into a healthier macro picture, at least tactically over the shorter term. And all of those linkages come into play, which means that there are so many ways you could play this. Let's use this as an example. If you believe the world's going into inflation, traditionally resources tend to do well out of inflation. So if your particular, and we'll go into some of the nitty gritty around that shortly, but if your resource basket's going up, your ability to play that would either be directly in the resource, the other one would be through some of the mining counters, as you've indicated. The other way to play it would be either through the currency of emerging markets that have exposures to those resources and so on and so forth. Now, the reason I wanted to highlight the nitty gritty is that it's not always a, you know, a rising tide that lifts all boats kind of scenario. Let's use something we've spoken about on the show before. Much earlier on in the year, we touched on the lumber price and lumber was going absolutely bananas because there was a shortage of lumber. There was an uptick in housing demand and that supply demand dynamic pushed lumber prices up quite substantially. Bear in mind, we had fires that were constraining supply and so on and so forth. Now, lumber is the kind of resource that arguably, if the price moves high enough, Lumberjacks go out there, they cut down a couple of more trees. As long as the lumber mills have capacity, boom, it hits the market fairly quickly. And so we saw that reaction function come through very, very quickly. Lumber prices corrected sharply lower. But then there are other commodities. So think of how long it takes you to go and build a copper mine or, for example, to go and sink an oil rig. Those kinds of investments have much longer lead times. And if you've gone through a period of curtailed investment in terms of building capacity in those industries, largely as a result of lower commodity prices over the last several years, when things heat up, when demand ticks up, the ability for those players, those miners to go and sink in more capex, to build more capacity and put it on stream is relatively constrained. And that is why you get this very high cyclicality that comes through in some of the other commodity markets. Think like oil, a lot of your base metals. It's so it, it boils down for me in terms of what does your downstream linkages and value chain look like? Uh, will those blockages persist? And if, if the industries you're looking at, if the resources or commodities you're looking at are those that have much longer lead times, bear in mind that if demand remains relatively supported, that that divergence, that upward pressure is likely to be a lot more persistent than in other commodities where the lead time to supply is arguably a lot shorter. Yeah, that's such a great point. And it's it's kind of this commodity economy and understanding all the downstream impacts. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. So the one thing I want to highlight is a business like Tungela, which is the coal business that was spun out of Anglo because of environmental pressures on Anglo, basically, they just couldn't own the thing anymore. So there's nothing more hated by ESG enthusiasts than coal. And the banks are not even funding it at the moment. So the reality is that existing coal projects are just steadily becoming more valuable. Uh, you know, the cost of electricity, which uh, Mo, you know, you won't know this, but ESCOM hiked it pretty severely recently. I mean, even I've started to notice what electricity at home is, is really costing this year. And amongst everything else I keep an eye on, suddenly that's kind of popped up as a big expense in winter. Reality is that it's only going to get worse if the coal price stays high and keeps running. But it's a perfect example of a commodity where there is a lot of demand for it, but the supply is just not coming on stream. And there it's because there's just no funding to go and do new coal projects. But to your point, something like lumber can correct a lot quicker than some of the other commodities which have a much longer lead time to actually bring that supply on board. I mean, oil would be another perfect example. Part of that commodity economy is understanding other companies that I think can win from that. And one of the, the really good performers on the JSE this year has actually been MTN. 
And in many ways, MTN is a look through into a commodity like oil because much of the concern around MTN has been whether or not they are ever going to repatriate money from countries like Nigeria. And there are other good examples, especially on the South African market. So I know I'm talking from an essay lens here of companies who are very exposed to Africa, which has you know been a difficult place over the past few years. The sort of African dream had faded for many as they couldn't get their money out and they had to go and invest in I mean, Angola was the worst. They had to go and buy US dollar linked bonds in Angola because they couldn't get the money out and they were just trying to desperately hedge against inflation. I mean, that was a feature for ShopRite, I think NAMPAC as well. It's just interesting how many sections of the market this kind of commodity economy actually touches. I think it's it's so important because often we look at you know, these correlations. I've seen tons of stuff on, on social media, you know, oh, uh, gold. I know gold is a sore point for you, Ghost, but, you know, gold should do well in periods of inflation. And there's a that's a yes and a no. You know, I, I know periods in, in time, certainly in my time of markets, where gold was seen as the reflation trade. So when things were inflating, inflation was becoming a problem, you wanted gold. And then there were periods when gold was seen as the deflation trade, because if everything was falling in a heap, you wanted gold as, as the safe haven. Now, the simple existence of both of those narratives, if we just look over the last 10 years, tells me that those correlations are not stable. They bounce all over the show. And sometimes there's a strong correlation and sometimes there isn't a strong correlation. So I would certainly caution our listeners to say, go and look at what are the underlying drivers. And again, we can use things like our lumber versus oil example, just so that people contextualize properly in their minds, what is their view of the world? How do they execute that view of the world in their own investment portfolio. I want to also touch on the very important point that you raised around Tungela and the coal assets, oil in general. We've spoken about ESG, the clean green economy of the future on the show many times. It's a topic that is very close to both of our hearts. And the reason I want to raise this is that we have to be so sensitized to the fact that whilst we go down this route and this journey towards building a cleaner, greener global economy, that there will be timing mismatches. And what does that mean? It means that we will curtail, for example, or global policymakers will curtail funding to oil giants. And in doing so, curtail investment, and that pushes up the relative price of oil and ironically makes clean energy a lot more feasible from a cost perspective. But we need to also be hypersensitive to the fact that the world can't flick a switch and automatically move straight off fossil fuels. And in that period where we're still building up the capacity in the green economy, if that dislocation occurs, it could lead to sustained higher prices in some of these older traditional resources, thinking fossil fuels and oil and so forth, for what would be a slightly longer period of time than, than would be ideal. So that is a risk on the inflation horizon that I am still concerned about, even though I think inflation in other sectors of the economy may not represent as much of a problem. Yeah, so if you want to hedge your ESCOM bill, then Tungela shares are probably not a bad shot. <laughs> and, uh, and other interesting uh, investment insights from our show. As we head towards the end of the show, and we've talked about commodities, I mean, the point is that they are generally a pretty good inflation hedge is the, is the whole idea. An example of something that is not a good inflation hedge is fixed income or government bonds. And perhaps you could just explain simplistically why in a period of high inflation, those are not the right place to be. So very quickly, remember if we throw back to that example where I'd said to you, monetary policy is orientated around inflation targeting. So if you get higher inflation, your policy response ordinarily would be 
tighter policy, higher interest rates. And for long-time listeners of the show, we, we've discussed how yields and bonds behave. But I'm going to quickly recap that. If interest rates start to rise, that means that the capital value of bonds and fixed income instruments will fall. And that's simplistically the reason why a fixed income investment is not necessarily a great investment if inflation starts to run away, is that you will start to take some significant capital pain on that portion of your portfolio. The other thing to bear in mind is that with rates as low as they are here, the knock that an investor is going to bear on longer duration bonds, which is in South Africa, the, 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 the term structure of the government bonds that have been issued tend to be quite long term. The knock you take on long duration, long term maturity bonds would be a lot higher than the knock that you're going to take on short duration, short term maturity bonds. So that's simplistically why that sector doesn't do well. Something I do like, which is, is, is somewhere in the middle, is if you look at REITs, and I've always had a, a preference for global REITs. If you look at REITs, that's real estate investment trusts, they sometimes tend to behave like fixed income instruments. So you would think in a rising interest rate environment, REITs could come under pressure because they behave like quasi-bonds. But bear in mind that there's also an earnings growth component that comes through in terms of some of your global REITs. And then there's the underlying NAV because it is your bricks and mortar. It's a physical asset. So theoretically, REITs there would be a great hedge on inflation, notwithstanding that you might see some short-term pain come through from the fact that if bond yields are higher, people might allocate capital away from REITs and income-generating assets and stocks back in towards bonds once the bonds have actually sold off. That's a dimension to, to, to bear in mind. And then the last thing, which we've also touched on on the show in the ETF shows probably about two shows ago, was buying treasury inflation-protected securities, or TIPS. And there are a number of ETFs and passive ways to go about doing that. So many, many ways to skin the cat. I think we've bit off quite a bit more than we could chew in a single episode here, Ghost. Uh, but that's great because listeners can come back to us with feedback and say, you know, we like this. Can you go and build out more detail on this particular aspect of the show? We look forward to that feedback uh, simply because we want to make sure that we always commit to what we say we're going to do, which is scratching beneath the surface. Yeah, and Mo, before we go, I just want to comment the one bit on REITs. So I agree with you completely. And I think specifically within the REIT space, it's the retail REITs that I think have got the best inflation protection because a lot of them have got leases with retailers where they have some kind of participation in turnover growth. And then that's obviously where your inflation hedge comes in because the lease actually earns more income for the REIT, you know, as that picks up. Whereas a lot of the office REITs are just coming under more and more and more pressure, you know, as remote working becomes a bigger part of people's lives. So again, and this is why people listen to Magic Markets and we read so much and everyone must read so much. There's always a lot to think about. And I think that's, a, that's probably a good place to leave it off this week. And uh, we look forward to a really exciting September. We've got a bit of a takeover of the show for a month from a brand partner who we're very excited about. So we'll announce that next week. But to our listeners, thank you. And we look forward to that. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.